Welcome to the Sprint to Profit podcast with Kirsty and Isaac. If you are an Amazon seller looking to grow your business with some of the latest tactics and strategies, along with some great guidance for your overall business, then you are in the right place. So pay attention and if needed, take notes. Let's get started. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Isaac and Kirsty here, and we're here today with Profit First, Clockwork, Surge, and all sorts of other business book author, Mike Michalowicz. I hope I pronounced that name right. You did. All right, cool. It's not too often you get to uh, pronounce Polish last names in this. I know. <laughs> so how are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well. Um, thank Great. you for asking. Yeah, and so obviously we we kind of came into contact with you because Kirsty recommended this book she was reading called Profit First. I said, okay, I'll check it out. And then another three months went by and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. And she's like, you got to read the book. I said, okay. So I finally got the thing, got <laughs> yeah. through the first chapter and I said, all right, well, the first chapter says to email Mike Michalowicz. And I said, yeah. all right, I'll email Mike Michalowicz. And so like, I don't know, six weeks, four weeks later, something like that, maybe a couple of weeks later. Um, yeah, you emailed me back and said, because I said something like, yeah, we, we'd be interested in talking to you for our group and, and seeing how they, you know, seeing that we're actually talking to you. We've been talking about your book for the last three, four months now. And um, last you know, year. Our, yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, even longer. Yeah, depending on how many like we've really got deep into it now. So, uh, but yeah, so profit first was the introduction, and obviously you've got the toilet paper entrepreneur, pumpkin plan surge, and the newest one, which is clockwork, which I haven't read yet, but I read a little synopsis about the uh, taking a four week digital digital vacation, <laughs> basically yeah. of just getting off the grid to see how well your business runs without you. And so I was I was actually curious about that because. I was wondering if you had done it because I hadn't read, read the book just yet to see if you had actually done it and how it went with you and how, were you going crazy? Were you kind of worried or, or if you actually took the challenge? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did it for myself when I was finishing that book, you know, every book I write, I, I am the Guinea pig for it. This was the first book I've written where I hadn't completed the final task because it took me a year and a half of preparation. And that's why I think most businesses will take it's a period of preparation. So just as I finished the book, I went on vacation. I think about, two months or three months later. So I did it. Um, it was interesting. The first thing was there was no fear. I thought like I wouldn't be able to leave. I left. I didn't look back at the business. I didn't connect. I didn't do anything. I was off for four weeks and just enjoyed life. I think part of it was because the conference I built mm. in the process and just felt it'd be seamless. And the idea of these, these vacations is if you can extract yourself from business for four weeks consecutively without any active input, a business likely, a small business can likely operate on its own because every element the business touches, works, touches on happens during a four week period, you know, invoicing and hires yeah. and fire, whatever. Um, so you have to build a team to do it. Um, Kiersey with, of European descent, um, this is actually a standard practice in Europe. Like you could call anyone in, you know, Germany in, in August, forget it. Yeah. Everyone's on vacation. Yeah. So it, it's more of this kind of Western mindset of like, we got to grind it out and hustle and work all the time. But the problem is it doesn't give our business independence. Mm -hmm. And I think the definition of entrepreneurship has become so bastardized that we think an entrepreneur is someone that's just constantly grinding and working like an animal. And that's not, it was never the intention of an entrepreneur. It was never the definition. An entrepreneur is someone who choreographs the resources, the people around them to achieve an outcome. Come. They take an extraordinary risk of having a vision that they think can become a reality and then choreograph uh, other people, other things, even clients to get to that vision. Yeah. And so the four hour work, the four hour work week, listen to me, <laughs> the four week vacation, <laughs> I'm like, oh, Tim Ferriss's book is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> four week vacation is the ultimate test that your business is running without you. 
And that's what we yeah. want. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And did you get any feed? Do you have any feedback from people that have done it? Like what was their, how do they feel that like the first week and then the second, it's a bit like a diet, you know, you go, I'm, yeah, I'm there, literally there, just starting to them. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the moment you make the decision, there's already a feeling. So the day you say I'm doing this and you go into your calendar and you book out four consecutive weeks, most people respond to with the sensation of gasping. <gasps> I can't, I can't do this. And then there's this realization. If you don't do it uh, forcibly, meaning you schedule it, it will happen naturally. I don't know the day, but there will be a day you can't work. I mean, because an illness or accident, or you're just retiring, you're just wanting to give up. And if you wait until that period, your business is in for a calamity. So you are going to do a four week, four week vacation or more, mm-hmm. but if you do it deliberately, now you can strengthen your business to to run on its own perpetually. So that's the first moment. There's a gasp and then a realization. And yeah. it's not like we, we book this thing out a year and a half and then we wait till it, we actually start doing certain test protocol. We actually go on breaks where we remove ourselves from the business, see how the business runs. And when you return, you ask your team, uh, and maybe your team's one virtual assistant, but you, you ask the others that are continuing the business forward in the systems, what didn't work, what broke? And then your job is whatever didn't work in your absence are the things you need to systematize for the next test. And you test it out. People have gone on four-week vacations. The stories back are unbelievable. One of my favorites just came back to me um, just a few months ago at the end of tax season here in the States, uh, April 15th, the last day of tax day. It's also when March Madness, the basketball teams are playing. And an accountant, his name is John Briggs, emailed me and said, it was my life stream uh, to go to the NCAA tournaments and watch March Madness basketball. And he's like, I never could because it's in tax season. And he said, oh my gosh. I never will if I keep on being the responsible party for tax season. So he declared his four-week vacation for the last four weeks of tax season. So May, March, April, May, June, no, April, January, March, March, April. March, April, thank you. From March 15th to April 15th, he took off four consecutive weeks. They ran, not seamlessly, there was issues, but the team navigated it. He said the team actually felt elevated. They felt more confident because they were entrusted with more. So they were excited. John experienced March Madness, and he already booked the next fortification for tax season again. So that, that's one of my favorite recent stories. But they're, they're pouring in. Mm. The realizations and the ahas people are having. And, and for myself, too. Yeah. Like, I feel confident that if, um, if I got sick or to stop today, it would hurt parts of my business. I wouldn't be able to do interviews. I, I wouldn't be speaking on the main stage. or Maybe I wouldn't be able to write books. But the core essence of my business, I think, would go on unabated now. That's awesome because we we work with um, Amazon sellers, right? So our business model is pretty much, it's not hands-off, but it's it's the best model that we found to essentially give you the best opportunity to have that freedom. So me, I was in a corporate job before I did this this business, Um, you know, grinding it at work every day. I just wanted to do something different, found lots of different things, and then this business model was the best. And the key thing you talked about the four-hour work week was that I read that book and then I was like, okay, I'm going to set up the business to fuel that. Yeah. And that's what we help try and help people to do. But what they tend to do is, and I don't know if you've found this, is that they tend to swap a job for a job. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so even though the business model is set up the right way, um, they just still don't seem to be able to get away from the computer. They're just sat there looking at, staring at it every day. So what would you say to to, to someone like that who's yeah so that's classic <laughs> and if you're experiencing that that's the definition of humanity so you're a human if you do that yeah. um what it, it is is this belief that productivity is a solution for business efficiency and those are two separate things 
we, we need a degree of productivity. Like you have to be productive, but believing productivity will elevate a business to run on its own is totally a misnomer. So here's what happens with productivity. You have this much stuff in your day, your eight or 10 or 16 hour day, whatever you define as a day. What happens is use productivity tools to kind of pack it down. You say, well, if I, if I take these shortcuts, use these applications, I can kind of pack down uh, how much work I get done and I can get more work done faster. The problem is it leaves a gap above it. The stuff you packed down now leaves a gap of available space. It's human nature to say, well, now I can fill this space. So let me take on more work. So now you start packing in more work, resulting in the necessity for more productivity, which opens up a little more space and you pack in more. We become impacted with the task list we have. And the problem, of course, is if one task goes awry, it causes everything to rip and tear apart. You know, that one day that you, you're, you're banging stuff out every five minutes and that one task now takes two hours, holy crap, your whole day's ruined, maybe you're weak and maybe this plays out for a month. So the key here is not to uh, become more productive, it's actually to remove chunks of work and to assign them out. The goal for you is actually to create a to not do list and to get <laughs> as much work off your plate as possible. The greatest thing that you can do as an Amazon seller, as any entrepreneur, quite frankly, is not doing work. It's designing outcomes. There is a statue dedicated to the most important task or responsibility, I should say, that every entrepreneur has. It's called the thinker. There, there's this naked guy sitting there with his chin on his fist. And what he's doing is contemplating perhaps life, perhaps business, but he's contemplating. And there, I've yet to find a famous statue called the doer. Like, the, you know, the guys run around, you know, it's the thinker, not the doer. The greatest asset we can offer our business is our mind. And sadly, by impacting in work, you remove the ability and freedom to think. And therefore, your business will never have leaps forward. That creative pops will never appear. It'll always be just doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, I think I, I should get a tattoo of that or, or get like a banner that says, don't, do, don't find stuff not to do, design outcomes, something like that, just so yeah, that yeah, we can- yeah. I thought you were going to get the naked guy on your shoulder to think. <laughs> yeah. That would be yeah. awesome. <laughs> so I guess there's, there's a question we always have because people, you know, no matter how successful they get, they always think that they're not successful, right? So, hey, I've yeah. got a good selling business. I'm doing 100 grand a month or 50 grand a month or 20 grand a month or whatever it is. But then they just don't think that they're ever successful. And because they're looking at somebody else and gauging themselves off of that. um, And then they never can actually enjoy what they're doing. So do you ever have like a a point where you can say like, you know, here's where you can see your, your own success. And here's where you need to start actually rewarding yourself, maybe taking a vacation, you know, then there's always people that like want to buy sports cars and stuff like that. So spend the money in a different way. Um, is there any way that you, you kind of define that role or that level of success for people? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you two responses. One is the perception of I'm not as good as someone else or whatever. And then I'll give you some maybe practical stuff you can do to live in with the confines of what you're experiencing financially and otherwise. So uh, I wear a a cheesy bracelet. It's a little bit of an attempt to still be a teenager, quite frankly, but um, (laughs) also this, it's an infinity symbol. You can't really see it, but this is a reminder to myself of the equality of all mankind. I used to relentlessly say, I look up to someone or occasionally I'd say I'd look down to someone. I'd never say it publicly, of course, I'd be, (laughs) but I really felt that way. And I now have a disdain for those phraseologies and and the damage it's causing to myself. When I saw someone ahead of me, however I would define that, uh, 
I would say, oh, I look up to them, which means in the same breath that I am in a lower position. So if I look up, that means I must be inferior. They're superior, I'm inferior. Mm -hmm. And when we see someone in a superior and inferior position is our natural wiring to defend ourselves. Our, our body is designed for survival. So when we see someone superior, we're like, well, either I got to climb up or more often it happens, I got to pull them down. Because if I actually reclassify them and pull them down, I won't feel bad about myself. Yeah. So I'd see someone like, oh, they're, they're wildly successful financially. And I'm like, well, they don't really deserve it, quite frankly. And you know, maybe they're a trust fund baby or they're dealing, they're dealing drugs. That's what they're doing. They're drug dealers, right? <laughs> it's the haters going to hate kind of mentality, right? Yeah, it's a pull down, which by the way, then if I can pull them down enough, now they're below me. I'm like, ah, I don't need to do anything. Good job, Mike. And then I just sit there. <laughs> Conversely, um, just as dastardly, shamefully, I would see someone that I don't uh, envy, but I feel pity for. And, uh, you know, the homeless person on the street where I would walk down the street and I make, don't make eye contact, Mike, don't make eye contact. I walk a, a broad step around them so they wouldn't see me. It's an avoidance mechanism. And uh, that's, I think, just as, as dastardly, just as damaging is there is no connection to them. It's like, oh, I'm superior. I don't need to move, but thank God I'm not them. No, there's something to learn from all people. Yeah. So this bracelet to me um, signifies that all of us are on the same path. We're just in different parts of the path. And I've also changed the phraseology. I don't say I look up to people or down to people. I now say I look over to people. So whenever I talk to someone and, and I'm impressed or for even frightened from their life story. I'm like, wow, I, I look over to that. It invokes curiosity. It actually becomes magnetizing for me. And I know I can take parts of their story. And uh, I encourage people to the same of me when they, they talk with me and someone's like, oh, I love what you do. And so I'm like, thank you. I hope you're simply looking over and taking the best for part of your journey. Like, I think that's the way to perceive it. And it's, it's mollified. It hasn't diminished completely, but it's mollified my compulsion to look at other people as more successful. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I just look at them as, as they're on their own journey. And I know regardless of what we define as success, everyone has all the elements of life going on. We don't know their full story. So um, we just have something to learn from everybody. Yeah, yeah I, I see this. Well, we see, we see this a lot. I mean, you see it obviously in every industry, but I think with the Amazon business in particular, because there's been a lot of success very early for a lot of people, right? Yeah. What, they can, what people consider success. The ubiquitous screenshot of sales, you know, that's huge yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> in all um, advertising. Um, but essentially, how would you say to help people to practice patience on that journey? Because yeah, so I first realize, you know, sales is total bullshit. It's, it's like the biggest mythology in the world is top line thinking. Yeah. Um, and so, gosh, so many people, including myself, guilty as charged, brag about sales. Oh, look at my revenue. I'm a, I surpassed the $1 million mark. Look at how fantastic I am. And then someone's like, oh, I surpassed the five. Oh. And then you had the, the, the 10 person walk in. I'm the $10 million man. You know, it's like, here's what I found sales are. Sales equates directly to stress. Sales is an obligation to deliver our products and services, perhaps, to our clients. The more sales you have, the more obligation you have. And obligation is stress on the organization. The uh, balance for that is profitability. Profitability brings about uh, permanence and sustainability and confidence. So uh, as revenue increases, we better be cranking up the profitability. And quite frankly, I am more impressed by a company that does say $200,000 and they're banking away 20% profit day in, day out than a company that does $200 million and is doing 1% profit. Like 
I really care about the profitability because that's sustainability, uh, it's healthiness. And I know this, businesses that are trying to sell their way out of a situation are desperate. They think the only way to survive is by selling more, which is a cash flow game. And a company like that is not stable and is probably not a good provider. I'll tell you this, I can't think of a single client in the world that would come to you and say, hey, I want you to sell me more because I know you can't pay for your bills. They would say, no, I, I want to avoid you because you can't pay your bills. Yeah. Clients actually, they want us, they'll never say these words, but they want us to be wildly profitable. Our clients will never come up to me and say, hey, you know, please come up here to you, rip me off. Just take me for all I'm worth. <laughs> they'll, they'll never say that, but they will say, I want to make sure Kirsty and, and Isaac, that you're available for me, that if a problem happens, that you're not distracted and you can serve me, that you have redundancy in your inventory. If there's a, a, a broken product that you can replace it without any hesitation, I want to be cared for. That's the words they'll use. And the only way to deliver on all those elements is if you have financial viability, profit. Because if you have a lot of money, a cushion sitting there, you can replace that product. You can care for the customer. You're not distracted by desperately trying to get a sale. You can finish the delivery to your client that you currently have. So our clients want us to be desperately profitable. Yeah. And we, we deal with a lot of people, uh, obviously, with Amazon business. They kind of do it on the side. And it's an e-commerce thing in general, right? So they tend to treat it as like a hobby, not yeah. a real business. Yeah. And therefore, they never actually make any money. Yeah. And a lot of times they're actually too comfortable to actually make that leap and go, kind of go all in, right? Because they've got a good paying job or they don't have to work for the money or whatever. Yeah. So they just like putting money into it. It's like, a, it's like an activity that they just never want returns for. What would you give us some, someone like that? What would you give for advice to someone like that? Yeah, I, I would call it a hobby. Like, like listen, it, it's okay to have a hobby. My, my hobby is playing guitar. I, I suck at it, Me but too. that's my little hobby. <laughs> and if I play guitar for a half hour, an hour on any given day, that will fill my juices for a while and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. We can have a hobby business, but it isn't a real business. Meaning its primary function is to give you a degree of joy. If that hobby business is, is sucking the life out of you, if you're starting to become desperate and using your one job to, to cover and pay for that hobby, maybe that's not really a hobby business. And maybe, maybe that's a little bit dangerous. Yeah. But just qualify as a hobby and say, listen, I just do this to get joy out of it and I don't care about a single penny. And, and write it down. Be very clear about this. Be very vocal about this. I'm just doing this for the joy of the experience. If you are half-assing it, now that's something different. If you're calling it a hobby, but you really want to devote your life to this and you really want to make money there, no longer call it a hobby. That's where you got to say, this is a real practical business. My full intention is just to support my lifestyle and to get joy out of the business. And then that's when you have to go in with very specific objectives and commitments. I'm going to achieve certain amounts of revenue. I'm going to assure a certain degree of profitability. Here's my time frame, And here's my if then. If this happens, I'm quitting the job. If it doesn't happen, I'm actually quitting the Amazon seller and I'm going back to the job. But you, if you want it to be a business, you got to get very real about it. And if you want it to be a hobby, call it what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. so it's like, it's essentially making, well, putting the line in the sand for yourself in your head, right? Because I think that's where we find people go, you know, it doesn't become a real thing until it's a real thing, right? What we try and help people with is to say, well, make it the real thing. And then it's just going to take you longer to be able to make it your full-time thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, the notion I went in initially when I was thinking about starting my own business for the, the first one was um, I need as much experience as possible. I need as much preparation as possible. And the more I prepare, the better off I am. Then I finally heard a saying from, I think it was Colin Powell, the f former general. And he said, uh, you know, everyone has the most sophisticated battle plans ready to go 
And he goes, but it's all out the window the second the first bullet flies. There's too many variables in the battle to plan for it all. There's some kind of master vision and strategy, but when the dynamics happen, everything changes. Mm. So he said, you, the biggest move is just to get the battle, you know, and not overthink it. I think the same thing in our business. We do have to do some degree of preparation. I wouldn't go in totally blind and ignorant, but there's a certain point and it happens quickly where we hit diminishing returns and then actually starts becoming this negative down. Like you're you're learning more, you're delaying more. Now opportunities passing by, opportunities passing by. From entrepreneurship, you know, 99% of the learning is actually in the doing. So I would slant toward premature uh, action as opposed to over planning. Yeah, I think there's a, a boxing phrase that's something like you, having a great plan is awesome until you get punched in the face. Yeah, that was the Tyson <laughs> thing. Yeah, every, that was what Mike Tyson said. Everyone has a plan to beat Mike Tyson until they take the first hit to the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know that this is probably something you've heard before, but there's a few things that people always say like, hey, Mike, you know, you don't know my business. It really isn't profitable. I can't make profit. Talking more about the profit first mentality, and that's what we're going to kind of try to, and, and we've been preaching to our members, and that's why your book is a book that we actually give out for when people subscribe to our uh, membership, they're going to say that it's, it's different. It doesn't make profit. My business is, you don't know my business. I, I, you, I just don't have profit. What would you say to those guys? So, uh, when I have the, I have the statistical information, it does work. Uh, it does. So we have actually, there's an author, her name is Cindy Thomason who wrote profit first for e-commerce sellers specifically works with Amazon. And I, I work with, she's a partner of mine. I work with her very closely and we have hundreds, if not now thousands of businesses in the Amazon seller space doing profit first, some with full implementations, others partially. And, uh, but the resistance, I still get it. Like there, there's, we believe now over 150,000 companies agnostically, not just Amazon sellers, 150,000 businesses that are doing this. And what we found is very common resistance is you don't know my business. It's not going to work. The reality is this is a behavioral based system. It is independent of the business. What happens as money flows into your business, it is natural, it's the natural human tendency to see what we have available and believe that's what's available for whatever the apparent issue or challenge is. So like $1,000 comes in into our bank account and we're like, wow, uh, I need to buy inventory. Uh, I got $1,000 to buy inventory. So we go, we buy $1,000 of inventory. And then the next morning, well, what about payroll or the insurance or you know whatever, the Amazon fees or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't think about that. It's human nature to revert to the immediate urgent issue and allocate, over allocate the amount of money flowing in. We are really bad at segmenting the use of money. The reality though is when $1,000 comes in, you have tax responsibilities. You have uh, Amazon seller fees and stuff, I'm sure. You have inventory you gotta buy. What about paying yourself a reasonable salary because you are an employee of your business. If you have other employees, um, there's all, you know, logistics and there's all these software subscriptions, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different fees. So what we need to do and what we do in Profit First is we allocate money to its intended use before we spend a penny. $1,000 comes in, we're going to take a sliver of that and allocate it to a profit. Every business should be profitable because that's the potion or the potion towards sustainability. And that gets rid of the, uh, the stress of revenue, right? So that's the balance. We have to take a sliver of that for owner's pay. That's paying the, what I would argue, the most important employee of any business ultimately is the owner that works within the business. Uh, a sliver to pay taxes, you are going to get taxed. The government sticks his hand in and pulls that money out. 
Uh, and then maybe for inventory, you can set up an inventory account. And so now when money comes in, we carve it up into these different accounts. And before you spend a penny, you see its intended use. And then we start working within the confines of its intended use and we operate our business healthily. And this is regardless of how new or old your business is. It's regardless if you've, you're making your first dollar or you're, you're well onto your millionth dollar. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we know what's available for what purpose before we spend a penny. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't read the book just yet, uh, you know, it's based on that old, you know, save it for a rainy day fund, mad money, vacation money, electricity bill, whatever. Like yeah. it's just this envelope jar system. Yeah. I just interested what you said there about inventory, because obviously we are an inventory based business. And this is kind of what happens with um, a lot of people is they forget that part. They also forget the part that, you know, you have to spend the cash probably three months in advance, maybe even five months in advance yeah. before you even see the return. Right. Yeah. So what would you, what we've been trying to recommend to people just as a, a ballpark is the profit that you allocate yourself, maybe take 50% of that to reinvest back into the business if you want to grow that business. And then obviously you've got the, the normal costs that are going to come in anyway for the, to keep the business going in inventory. But if you want to essentially use the business cash to fuel the business and grow it and scale it with new products, have you got like an idea, you said you would be, you've been working with e-commerce sellers. So yeah. have you got an idea of how people should apportion that cash out? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I personally would not apportion profit. I think profit has a singular intention is to reward the shareholders of a business. By starting an Amazon seller business, you've taken on extraordinary risk. I think it's 93% of the world population has never and will never start a business. So you're among the elite 7% in the world that has started a business. And just like I invested in public stock, like I've owned Ford, for example. When, uh, when Ford sends its profit distribution, they sent me one, 13 bucks. <laughs> I, I didn't look at it and say, oh, I don't deserve this. And I didn't plow it back or reinvest in Ford and say, let's grow. Uh, I, I, didn't go, I didn't call them up and say, hey, can I come to the factory for an hour and work? <clears throat> I'm a shareholder. <laughs> and they know I've taken risks. I want the stock to go up in value, appreciation, so I can sell it one day, or it may go down. But they are rewarding me for taking on that risk. That's the exact and only intention of profit. In our business, you are a shareholder. You have an own, you know, maybe 100% of the business. You want the value of the business to increase over time, ultimately maybe selling it, and you'll make a lot of money. Profit is, is the distribution to the shareholder to keep you engaged in the business. It's a reward mechanism. That's the intention. So what I suggest is profit stays for that. <clears throat> Maybe you adjust the percentage just slightly, but let's have another account called inventory. And I know uh, as an Amazon seller, you know, that's a major cost for you. So maybe for every thousand dollars that comes in, maybe I'm just picking a random number, 50%, maybe it's more, but say 50% of that money's for inventory. So say a thousand dollars comes in, I'd immediately allocate $500 to inventory. That's to replenish and buy new inventory. Maybe try mm -hmm. new products. The remaining 50% then gets carved up into profit, maybe 10% of that goes into profit and blah, 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 and you carve it up. But the inventory account tells you what, what you have to work with. The thing is, you only work with that. If you can't, if you can't buy inventory for that, that's your business speaking to you and saying, we have a fundamental problem. Are the allocations wrong? Maybe we got to adjust that. Are we buying inventory too quickly? Or is it too expensive? Is there a different inventory we should be buying? Are we you know, overstocking? Like when you can't pay your bills, your business is telling you you can't afford those bills. And it's not like, oh, let's just take from profit and not worry about it. No, we have to investigate it. This is where we, trans we change into a true entrepreneur, which is someone that becomes wildly curious about their business and starts moving the pieces to maximize the business's efficiency. Mm -hmm. So I set up an inventory account in short. Yeah, yeah. brilliant.
So just out of curiosity, so what we, what we want to try to do and to inspire uh, each month, we have like a new challenge and we really want to set up a, a, what we call a profit first challenge for 30 days. Yeah. Just kind of coming from the, the mind of the, the mastermind here. Uh, what would be maybe some of the steps you would say, hey, guys, for, for the first 30 days here, here's the steps you would take to really put profit first <clears throat> in your business. So that's a great question. And I'm going to give you a bold statement first. I, if, if everyone doing this challenge does this, I guarantee you permanent profitability. Guaranteed. Promised. Uh, <laughs> you know, needle my eye. From the horse's uh, mouth. <laughs> grandmother's grave. Like all that stuff. But, and, and, and it's so simple. That's my other promise. It's so simple to do that there's no excuse not to do it. So that's my promise. Guaranteed. So before I say this, I just want people that are watching right now to say I'm in or not. And uh, write down on a piece of paper that you're in. Because when you hear this, the funny thing is, even though it's so simple and it guarantees profit, I found as I teach this to people, a lot of people end up not doing it because life takes over. So I just want you to make a visceral commitment to do this. So assuming everyone committed, if you didn't, you can skip this part. You can go listen to some music or something. <laughs> committed. Here's the two simple steps. Step one is go to your existing bank if you like them. You can find a new one if you wish, but go to your existing bank if you like them and set up one account and make it a savings account and nickname it profit. That's the one step. Going to your bank, maybe it's going to be a half hour to an hour of time you need to invest to get this account set up is worth it. Step two, allocate a mere 1% of any deposits to the profit account and just don't touch the profit account. It's that simple. I'm saying if a thousand bucks comes in, take 10 bucks and put in your profit account. Guaranteed profit. There's profit now. It's guaranteed. You've taken it first. Run your business off the remaining $990. And I know this for a fact. If you can run your business off $1,000 of inbound cash flow, you can run it off of 990. You can still buy your inventory. You can figure everything out. It's only a, a modicum of change. But the difference is you'll start seeing that profit account. Every time a deposit comes in, put in another 1% of whatever got deposited into that profit account. It'll start to grow. And what I found is that businesses that start this way by starting slow start to grow. They, they say, wow, I'm actually having a cash profit accumulating. What if I try 2%? What if I set up more accounts? We just start low and slow, nice and easy, and start building the mental muscle of, wow, I can take my profit first, and then you expand into the full system. If you do that 1% into that profit account for 30 days, I bet you'll get addicted to having a profitable business, and then you'll grow into the full system over the following year. Yeah, and like you said, it's a habit-based business, right? It's not, it's not just about, hey, you're seeing money. It's like, hey, you're actually it's getting exactly excited. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the big thing. This is a behavioral-based system. I people say, oh, it's an accounting system. Cash uh, Profit first is not a accounting system is a cash management system based upon behavioral mechanics, how our mind works. Those are pretty big words for a real simple system. Basically, you don't change your habits. If you log into your bank account and see what your bank balance is every day, awesome. Keep doing that. We're just going to set up a system that channels that behavior to start driving the results you want, which is profit. Yeah. So we have a few uh, kind of off the wall questions we wanted to ask you because we wanted to see your response for some of these. So Kirsty, maybe you want to ask this, uh, or I can ask the first one if, if you if you want. The answer is I've never, I never have. That's the answer. What's the question? <laughs> well, well, once, once um, in college, once in college. <laughs> <laughs> well, if an alien turned up on your doorstep, knocked on the door, what would you ask he, she, the alien? And 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 then and why, why is it more? actually is it here? Yeah, so uh, I would ask about kind of the greater universe and saying, what is the, what's the source? You know, what, what we may call God or universe, whatever, I'd want to know about the source. Because if an alien can make it down here, uh, it is probably far more sophisticated um, than 
my thinking could ever be. So I'd be really curious about that. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see if they want to go out for some sushi. <laughs> I like sushi. You have, yeah. Do you have any idea of why it would be here? I, I think because our time has come. I, so listen, I, this is a little bit crazy. I, there, I cannot comprehend there not being other life experiences out there because if the universe is infinite, that means there's infinite possibility. So there has to be far superior beings to us. I think the only reason they would visit is to intercept our own erroneous ways. And so I think if they came down, they'd say, you, you guys really messed this one up. We got we to gotta insert ourselves. Otherwise, I think, I think infinite knowledge knows that in, interfering is not a good thing. So I don't think there'd be any interference unless a calamity of such extraordinary degree presented itself that they come visit. Yeah. Or, or they're big sushi fans. That could be yeah. the other thing. <laughs> they like a good greasy cheeseburger or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After a Philly cheesesteak. Cool. And so then uh, I do want to ask, what do you consider the accomplishment that you're most proud of? Uh, probably my marriage. 21 years. Happy. Love my wife. She's my best friend. Yeah, that's it. Is that going to be your next book? Is that going to be my book? Yeah, next book. How to have a successful uh, no. marriage. It's not necessarily. I maybe some future book. No, you know, I'm I'm so business focused. Like, I don't think there'll be relevancy. I, I don't want to put stuff in that's totally superfluous. Even though I'm notorious for writing like these little adjuncts and rabbit hole things in my books. But no, I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll write a book for my wife one day, like a little poem or something. I don't know. The funny <laughs> thing is, my, my wife does not read my books. She pulled me aside uh, like a few months ago and she goes, "I got to ask you something. I want you to be totally candid. I I haven't read your books." Um, <laughs> She goes, does that hurt you? And I thought for a second, and I'm like, it really doesn't. Like, I, I, she's not an entrepreneur. She has no entrepreneurial desires. I'm like, no, it, it doesn't hurt me. I, yeah. Yeah. So. It's all right, Mike. I wrote, wrote a book about uh, marketing and Kirsty hasn't read it yet either. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not your wife, so. <laughs> yeah, touche, touche. <laughs> um, I do want to ask you about this reality TV show you did. It was called Bailout. Um, wow. And in that, in the, in the pilot episode that we watched, uh, me and Kirsty watched it together, uh, you traded somebody's Mercedes Benz out for no. free ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah, what yeah, were yeah. they thinking and, and how did that go overall like after the episode was done? Yeah, so that was a little reality show supported by American Express and, and fortunately never got legs. The idea was to go into a business that was on the brink of shuttering the doors and turn them around within 24 hours. And in the show, in the, in the uh, little sizzle pilot, we say that uh, you know, struggling business is like a patient in cardiac arrest. Sometimes the only way to save them is to shock them back to life. I remember that because I had to repeat that line a thousand times <laughs> over. And um, what we did is we went into, it was like a, a beauty spa type business. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. They, they were in real financial trouble. And uh, the interesting thing is they had a huge amount of sales. They were famous in their community, well-loved loved and liked, and they couldn't, couldn't get by financially and they were going to close the doors. And I went through their P&L and their expenses and their personal expenses that they were pulling on the business were ridiculous. This, they had this nice apartment that the business was paying for the full thing well beyond their means. They had a Mercedes and that was such a good visual. That's what we picked on. They had this like super high-end $120,000 Mercedes in the driveway. You know, they, they should be driving a, a Toyota. There's no shame in that. Actually, there's pride in that. And um, they didn't get it. So we said, we're going to do something shocking. We, I, we found, the producers of the show found, but we found a, uh, a guy owned an ice cream truck. And in the winter months, it wasn't being used. And he said, I'll give you my truck because I want to drive around so people see the brand. So when the summertime comes around, they're buying from me. So it was a win for him. He says, I won't charge you. Just fill it up with gas and maintain it. 
no problem. So we, we towed away the Mercedes, traded it in, and uh, they got an ice cream truck. And, <laughs> and you know, the whole idea, of course, is not they're going to drive an ice cream truck for the rest of their lives, but it was like a, it was kind of a punch to the face, that shock yeah. to say, yeah. you, you know, drive this ice cream truck around for a few days and see how many of your friends like, make fun of you or even notice. No one freaking noticed. That, that was just a ride now. Yeah. And I just wanted to wake them up. You don't need an expensive ride. And, and often we justify it. Like, oh, if I have an expensive car, people will think my business is successful. If I have the big apartment, people will trust me more. That's all nonsense. Yeah. 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 And so if people want to connect with you, Mike, uh, or if, if you wanted to like mention anything that they should check out, um, what would they do uh, after this? So uh, my website is the mecca, if you will, for all my material. I'll give you a way to, to get to it because Mike McCallowitz is the domain, MikeMcCallowitz.com. Too hard to spell, too Polish, too long, <laughs> too ugly. My nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. And uh, <laughs> I've never driven a motorcycle, ironically. But if you go to MikeMotorbike.com, uh, that forwards you onto my website. And I wrote for the Wall Street Journal for a couple of years. All my articles are up there for free. Uh, my books, you can get chapter downloads for free. I'm a blogger and a podcaster too. All, you know, all free, of course. Yeah, and obviously we highly recommend. I'm going to check out Clockwork now that uh, um, it's come out and I've finished Profit First, obviously. But yeah, that's the next on the list. And then, Oh, awesome. I hope you yeah. love it. Yeah, and yeah. Then I'll email you and let you know for sure. Please do. All right. Chris, did you have anything you wanted to ask real quick? Or? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say it was awesome chatting to you. Like we said, you know, we are your biggest, well, I'm sure we're not your biggest, biggest fans, but we're definitely, we recommend your book. As Isaac said, as soon as anybody joins our program, they get a copy of the book. So, oh, I love um, it. yeah, Thanks. because like you said, well, I've, I picked on something you said earlier, which I'm going to steal, but I'll quote you was that it's um, profit gives you confidence. And I think that is the key thing that we, especially with our clients and this industry in general, is that they have super confidence when they start, but then as they start to see right. the reality, it, it's just destroyed, right? So we want to get that confidence back for people. So I think I'm definitely going to use that as a lever to uh, get them to implement the system for sure. I will use that 30-day challenge that you uh, processed out to get them profitability immediately. Guaranteed, yeah. as Michael Guaranteed, baby. You just got to do it. <laughs> awesome. Well, we appreciate your time and thanks for coming on and talking with us today. And uh, hopefully our members are going to see this and uh, find it very useful in their businesses. Kirsty and Isaac, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very thanks, much, Mike. Thanks, Have a great day. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you would like to get more information about selling on Amazon, head to goteamreal.com for some absolutely free training.